And so when I was exploring That's some of the projects in Pakistan, you have some m- super massive solar farms, which I think is just yes. outstanding. Yes, yes, it is. I'll tell you something honest. You know, back in 2015, when the idea of, you know, going for renewables was uh, being discussed, even in Pakistan, people thought we can't afford it. Not yet. You know, we, we are really going through an economic crunch. And now, I mean... Two years on, I was already in certain conferences and uh, certain meetings where Chinese were heavily working towards how can we help countries along the BRI transition towards greener energy. This is a big step that renewables are not seen as unfeasible in Pakistan now, but actually it's happening. We have one of the biggest solar power projects in the region, if not the world, and that is producing electricity. We have solar panels from China are very popular already in Pakistan for many years. Pakistanis are now thinking about, you know, transitioning to renewables. And it doesn't cost as much as they had Mm -hmm. initially thought because of how fast China is advancing uh, the technology. China is the leader in renewable energy right now. So this is also a big shift where we don't see um, green energy or renewables Mm -hmm. as a cost, Mm -hmm. but actually as a medium and long term investment as a viable option. So that that's an important shift as well. Welcome to The Bridge. Fun conversations on culture, life, and everything in between. Find us where you get your podcasts. If you like the show, then consider pushing the like button or giving us five stars. Suggestions, comments, anything you would like to share, email us at welovethebridge at gmail.com. We love the bridge. Today, we have a special guest, Zun Ahmed Khan, I hope I'm saying that right, is a fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, or CCG, and a research fellow at the Belt and Road Institute at China's prestigious Tsinghua University, well known as the uh, Harvard of China. She's an expert at Shanghai Cooperation Organization, on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which I have a question about, just the pronunciation, and uh, Eurasian Connectivity. She's an anchor for China Economic Net, and her geopolitical commentary are regularly featured in the media, CCTV, CGTN, and more, and she's the founding editor-in-chief of the Shanghai Review. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yes. So we want to learn a little bit about uh, more about you. When, for example, when did you come to China, and uh, how would you compare life in China to other countries? Okay, that thank you so much, Jason, for this uh, opportunity. I've been looking forward to a conversation with you. Following your work as Likewise. well, I think you know it's very important to have more people who are also based in China and from other countries to be able to express what life here is really like. So kudos to the work that you're doing. For me, I'll try to keep it brief, but in 2015 is when I came to Beijing for the first time. Long story short, you know, as a Pakistani, uh, we have a very close relationship with China. We call China an Aryan brother. So we obviously grew up, you know, I also did grow up in this environment where we thought of China as our closest friend. And my father also happened to be flying with Pakistan International to Beijing often in the 80s and 90s. So we did have a lot of Chinese, you know, cultural artifacts in my house and his photographs. So I think I had a bit of closer understanding, even as a kid, about what China was, how life is over there. 
But that's not the reason I came to Beijing in 2015. So after my graduation in political science from mm -hmm. a university in Lahore, I was working as a research analyst in international relations in Pakistan. And I was covering basically the developments happening in the region. I think most people listening to this podcast are quite familiar with how the region was shaping up and the challenges that we faced. And also, I was frequently visiting the United States with my family because I have family there. And what I felt increasingly as a Pakistani, you know, given the challenges that my country was facing because of a war next door and challenges economic as well as security, and in addition, you know, the various conflicts in the Muslim world, I felt that we really do need a transition. I mean, hegemony is not working. And it's not just me. I think there are multiple people across the region, across the global south, that felt very strongly about less hegemonic activities, fewer wars, and we need a multipolar world. So this is what my passion really was as a young analyst at that time. And I increasingly, in my reports, in my articles, I was covering developments coming from China. And this is something, you know, to be honest, like a lot of people think that Pakistan and China are such close friends. But I don't think at that time in Pakistan, there was a clear focus on how far China has come in a very short span. And I remember when the AIIB was officially announced, it was a historic development. It was as if, you know, now countries that were previously developing or are still partially developing, they are assuming a leadership role. And then I also read about the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And what, and honestly, as someone covering especially the conflict in Afghanistan and its implications for people in both our countries and the region, uh, it was clear that war is not the solution. And we need better ways to understand uh, peace, security, and work towards it. So the SCO and obviously the BRI. And these were things that were just becoming increasingly a part of my writing and what I thought, you know, I wanted to do, just work towards a multipolar world. And I think, so the BRI and also the five principles of peaceful coexistence, the first time I read about them was in the context of Afghanistan. And that is all about, you know, respecting a country's mm. agency and recognizing that the people of a certain country have the right to determine what works for them. And this is what essentially, and of course, nudges from a few mentors here and there. And I thought, okay, I have to go to Beijing and understand what this is all about. And if there's one country, I mean, that's that's just an inkling I had back in 2014 when I thought about this for the first time. If there's one country that's going to really push us towards a more multipolar world, it would be China. And then I got into the program at Tsinghua is very lucky, uh, Chinese politics and foreign policy. It's an international relations degree. And yeah, I initially thought I'd just be here for two years, understand a new perspective a perspective that I hoped agreed with what I believed in. And then we'll see. But here I am eight years on. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, there are a lot of things that happen in one's life to lead them where they are. But I would say that, you know, in a nutshell, this is this is the trajectory of how I ended up in Beijing for the first time. And your second question, wow. you know, how would I compare life in China versus other countries? I mean, of course, my first, when mm -hmm. I landed in Beijing for the first time in 2015, I definitely was not expecting the Beijing in my father's photographs, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s. I was aware that a lot of development has taken place, but I was not expecting the pace at which the city was. I was not expecting how international Beijing was. For instance, in my own program, we had about 25 students 
but they were from all parts of the world. And there was such an international and open-minded, you know, diaspora from other countries in Beijing. It was the perfect place to really, you know, be creative and share ideas. And I, I definitely was not um, expecting that. And the other thing, obviously, small things like, you know, the public transport. I have been to sub in subways in many Western countries. In Pakistan, we did not have a subway system at that time. But this was by far the best. Clean, people were disciplined, respectful, it's so safe. I can go on and on and on. But my first impression was that this is really something unique, welcoming, dynamic. And things have only improved from You know, I ask uh, why people come to China. Uh, of all of my guests, we've had, I don't know, 50 guests. And mm. that was probably the most nuanced and well-thought-out reason. <laughs> so congratulations. <laughs> yeah, I think the subway is something to be really proud of here. We have in San Francisco a public transportation infrastructure, but it is nowhere near as advanced as that in Beijing or Shanghai for that matter. In terms of, well, I want to kind of jump ahead a little bit. You say you have family in the United States and so and you have connections. You've been, been to a lot of Western nations. It seems to me, and from my perspective, that Western media does not represent China fairly or accurately. How would you characterize the differences that you see actually living here versus some of the media that you see coming out of the West? You know, as a Pakistani, it's not uh, new for me to be skeptical of how Western media is covering the country. Mm -hmm. So I go with what I, there were obviously, you know, you live your life every day. So there are a lot of things that affected me in this journey prior to coming to China. And one of the things was how people in the United States thought of even Pakistan as maybe a very barbaric country, as a country that doesn't deserve any empathy at all, as a country whose opinions and perspectives are outdated at best, you know. Uh, so, so for me, like now, when I look at the coverage about Beijing, about China in general, and how it is trying to unfortunately create a perception among outsiders that China is somehow a threat somehow China's economic development or whatever, you know, we are reading about is superficial at best. How people here are somehow just completely unhappy and, you know, not able to express how they feel or live a life that's gratifying for them individually. There's a lot of negative coverage. I mean, this is just parts of it. I think it's obviously unfortunate, and I think there's a big gap. So, for, for example, living here, when we have normal conversations with people on the street or when I'm sure you also get to travel, and I do, people are very receptive. They're well aware of what's happening in the world. They have only seen their lives improve over the span of two generations and drastically. And I can also feel the difference between 2015 and today. There's only been constant improvement. So I think, first of all, when you talk about the negative media coverage that Western media is doing vis-a-vis -vis China, it is something that most people from the global south, from developing countries, can relate to. They are aware of. And that's why the real audience of this coverage is really not in the global south. It's only for the masses in Western countries mm -hmm. that have fallen prey to deceptive um, misinformation. And I think there's obviously, there's a reason. There's a reason to try and demonize China. Because which person, you know, currently facing economic challenges or just trying to live a normal, peaceful life in even a developed country wouldn't be inspired or partially attracted or intrigued by what China has achieved? I mean, completely ending absolute poverty. 
prioritizing people's well-being and doing that in a way that is proactive. I mean, look at the changes this country has seen, and we also see that there is a complete receptivity towards how people think. I, I believe that maybe some of your viewers will be aware of how the whole process people's democracy system works. It is, it is, a, it is a system that is constantly working towards improving how, how well people's perceptions, opinions, and priorities can be involved in the decision-making process. It is a receptive system. Mm -hmm. And I think it is this basic attractiveness of China's system and advancements that's leading Western media to demonize China. Because Western media and this certain brand of this mindset has always, since the especially the 80s and the late 90s, proposed that somehow this is the end of history. Mm -hmm. Somehow this is the system that they have achieved and the status quo that they have try to solidify is going to be forever until the end of time. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, China comes up, China becomes more significant and China starts initiating developments. And not only does China initiate these developments and that communication, that mindset resonates with developing countries. And that is the threat that they face in their minds because they have somehow created a reality they have tried to create a reality that they are meant to remain rulers. They are meant to remain, you know, the ones that determine how the world will develop. Mm -hmm. So I think obviously it is unfortunate, but I also feel that the effectiveness of that propaganda will gradually diminish. I, I think that's inevitable. You cannot. Yeah. I have never considered really the idea that a lot of other countries have already been undergoing this process of demonization by Western media. And until you really pointed it out, I didn't think about the lack of receptivity in the developing world who've already been enduring this kind of media discrimination, up, up, discrimination until you really pointed. I, that's a whole other way for me to think about this entire problem. And thank you for that. You know, I really wanted to get to the concept of the iron brother, like, could you delineate how China and Pakistan have developed this very special relationship over the past, I don't know, decades? In a nutshell, uh, actually, you know, back in the 1950s, obviously, Pakistan was uh, one of the Pakistan was founded in 1947 and the People's Republic of China in 1949. And Pakistan was obviously, you know, we talk about this, how Pakistan was one of the first non-socialist countries that recognized China. But I think it was really the change, you know, of our, the strength of our relationship and the importance both countries gave each other sort of evolved also in the 1960s when we faced a common challenge in the region, which at that time was India. And that became a starting point. However, with time, you know, China and Pakistan have always diplomatically supported one another. A PIA, the Pakistan International, was one of the first, was the first non-socialist airline to travel to China. At that time, I don't know if you're aware, but Pakistan was quite an advanced economy in the Asian continent. And it was, you know, uh, Pakistan also was working closely together with Chinese banks, etc., to help them, you know, maybe modernize, develop a better banking system, etc., and China also supported Pakistan every time in the UN consistently. And I think it's really, you know, our support for each other over that, that period when both China and Pakistan did face some challenges globally and that unconditional support that 
firstly, you know, led to a trust that I would say even today is unprecedented. There were many moments, you know, our leaders visiting China and their Chinese leaders coming to Pakistan. Pakistan also played a very vital role in the first China-U.S. detente. It was a Pakistan international flight that brought Kissinger to Beijing for the first time. And I mean, that's the kind of support um, we really have had for each other. I'll also mention, you know, one of our leaders brought uh, mangoes <laughs> as a gift to uh, to Chairman Mao back in the 60s. And that man those mangoes became a symbol of solidarity. And then, you know, Chairman Mao distributed those mangoes amongst different leaders all across the, China the country. And people still know about the mangoes, you know. Uh, so I think in a way, it's been very tangible support for both sides. Unconditional people say, but obviously it was, it's always made sense for China and Pakistan since the 1960s to support each other. And security-wise as well, we share the region, we have common interests, and we have always felt that this, China's strength and increased, you know, recognition of China's position in the world is a good thing for Pakistan. And China has also always felt that Pakistan being a stronger a country with a better economy, a country that can play a more conducive role in the region is is a benefit, is a strength for China. And I think this is really, you know, where from both sides, we had Pakistani films coming into Chinese cinema. If you talk to people right now who were, who are now probably in their 60s and 70s, they would know many Pakistani movies. Pakistanis were also watching Chinese films. We've had a respect for Chinese culture and heritage. In our history books, we study about China as our brother friend that has always supported us. And we also have, you know, we also talk about the millennia of history under the ancient Silk Road and the Gandhara civilization that we share. So it's, I think it's, there, you can't pinpoint one moment where this iron brotherhood happened. But it really was, you know, at the times when Pakistan needed a friend the most, China was there. And at the times when China needed a friend the most, Pakistan was there. And with no conditions, this is what has led to a friendship that is on the, obviously between the two governments, but also the warmth that people have towards China and Pakistan and towards Pakistan and China is something that one can only experience to understand what it feels. Mm -hmm. So as I said, you know, when growing up, you know, I know that some countries in the region, they also have thought of China. Mm -hmm. They have a mixed sentiment sometimes, right? They've had a mixed relationship. But for, as a Pakistani, we always felt of China as a positive, you know, presence, as a country that is bound to play a positive role in the world, a country mm. that has moral principles and respect and uh, deep history. There, there is a profound respect for China and Pakistan. And even if you watch the surveys from different international organizations and the surveys on perception about China's rise and China's role, Pakistan ranks the highest. So it's it's something that has taken, you know, generations and decades, I would say since the 60s in particular, that both countries, people on both sides have a, a warm feeling towards one another. And obviously it was uh, in 2015 when the first phase of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor was announced. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, BRI is announced in 2013, but in 2015, we actually had the first official package of the Belt and Road Investment, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor announced. Let me tell you that at that time, Pakistan was facing an economic crisis and you know the, the consequences of a security crisis that are hard to mm -hmm. describe. 
We had electricity shortages for 12 to 14 hours a day in the best communities of the country. We had we were de-industrializing since the 2007 and 2008. We had lost over 80,000 lives in the war. Uh, Pakistan has the second highest number of casualties in the war against terror. And because of the, even though the, the number of incidents happening in Pakistan had reduced, but the perception had not changed. And many you know, countries that were traditionally the ones investing in Pakistan's infrastructure or helping with you know, investments, attracting, helping us attract foreign direct investment, they were simply not interested. And at this lowest point, China comes with a $46 billion investment in energy infrastructure, in transport infrastructure, special economic zones, the port of Gwadar. And I cannot express what a moment that was for Pakistanis. Mm -hmm. It was even today, you know, when we talk about Pakistan's development, Pakistan's future prospects, Pakistan's focus on how we want to improve our economy or people's circumstances, CPEC is the center of that conversation from 2015 to today. And I think even though we have had a feeling of Iron Brotherhood and we've had tangible support, especially a lot of strategic collaboration between both sides, CPEC was another defining moment for us to deepen that feeling of Iron Brotherhood. You know, one of my questions was going to be, is it CPEC or CPEC? So I've had that answered already. Yes. Um, you know, <laughs> you are an expert on the Belt and Road Initiative. You once called One Belt, One Road. I think it's Chinese. It's still called One Belt, One Road. Could yeah. you tell us a little bit about what, well, what is five connectivity maybe, or what are the defining features of the BRI and what is its purpose? What are its purposes around the world? Okay. The way I see the BRI, I will still call it BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative. Sometimes even I call it the Belt and Road Vision. <laughs> I think it's a mindset shift. If one really wants to understand the Belt and Road Initiative, it's important to observe what China has experienced and made possible domestically. In Chinese ancient wisdom, you know, a road can lead to prosperity, building infrastructure, making mobility possible, creating circumstances for people to be able to move around is the first step we need to take towards improving people's circumstances. And that is the priority. If there's any, any government in the world, their basic mandate is to make the lives of their people better. If there's one thing all countries in the world agree with, it's the sustainable development goals that we need to improve the basic conditions for human life. So if I have to try, because, because the BRI, as you said, has evolved. The first phase, which was announced in 2015 in most countries, was about hard infrastructure, ports, pipelines, roads, railways, special economic zones. And it was, I believe, in recognition of the growing needs of developing countries in particular. It's not just Pakistan, multiple countries in the world they needed someone to take interest in their infrastructure. One of the things mm -hmm. that, for example, Pakistan's prime minister in 2014 said in the UN General Assembly was that we want trade, not aid. We need someone to take an interest, not only in keeping people alive, but actually creating, helping us create the circumstances in which we can make our economies better. Because that is the only sustainable solution. However, I do think if, if we observe even how traditional Western countries who were taking an interest in countries' infrastructure, maybe back in the 60s and 70s, there were a lot of initiatives, even up until the 80s to some extent. Those countries had stopped taking interest in the real priorities of developing countries. 
At the same time, mm-hmm. China did have a, a track record that is unprecedented in human history. China has developed, connected this massive, you know, country through mm-hmm. infrastructure, and that has changed the lives of Chinese people. And they have thus, you know, a track record, a, a method, a successful method to make that happen. And I think a second point is also that China is part of the region. China is part of the Eurasian landmass. China is part of, you know, so so whatever developments are happening in South Asia, Central Asia, East Asia, Europe, Africa, China is directly connected with those. There is a pragmatic interest as well in helping or Mm -hmm. seeing how it is possible for China to make the region better off through the way that China knows, which is improving circumstances for development. Mm -hmm. So I think in a nutshell, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is really, the first phase was about, in a way, problem solving. The first phase was about recognizing what is it that countries need and what can China do to make that possible. For most countries, it was really taking interest in infrastructure. And that is China's, that has been China's expertise. Mm. And then we moved to the second phase, you know, where in 2019, uh, 18, there was a shift that to hard infrastructure is not the end, but a means towards socioeconomic development. This was, you know, an entire, and this happened through dialogue between host countries of the Belt and Road projects and China and entire regions also, sometimes at the multilateral front coming together and saying, okay, this is what we need as a continent or as a region. And then we evolved, you know, from hard infrastructure towards socioeconomic development, human impact. And now we know that the Global Development Initiative, which is about SDGs, the security, global security initiative, which is in line with the Shanghai spirit, mm-hmm. recognizing that, you know, security and safety are interconnected and multifaceted, and the global civilizations initiative, which is, again, about recognizing that we don't, uniformity is not what we need. We need unity. Diversity has been a reality for mm-hmm. millennia. You cannot end that. So the global civilizations dialogue is about recognizing that mm-hmm. we can be different and that can be our strength collectively, about respecting each other and not converting one another. And all of this and more is part of the Belt and Road Initiative. So if I have to, you know, say what is the Belt and Road Initiative, I would say that it is a vision mm-hmm. that is in line with the Bandong spirit. Mm-hmm. The Bandong, which is back in the 1950s and 60s when developing countries came together and mm-hmm. say we don't want hegemony. We want recognition, we want our agency to be respected. We want to be able to determine our future, mm-hmm. our present, our circumstances. We deserve equal respect. So the Belgian Road Initiative is, is a vision that is connecting countries in the global south and also the global north. That is the purpose. Mm-hmm. Towards a better focus on development that is lasting, respectful, and also receptive changing circumstances. This is how I would describe it. But uh, the rest keeps... Well, it sounds like the outline for a very good book. One of the, there's two or three uh, criticisms from the West always that seem to be lobbed at the Belt and Road Initiative or vision. And that one of the primary ones is debt trap diplomacy, that China comes in and forces developing countries to take loans that they can't manage and then uses that as leverage to take over their parts of their economy. I'm not actually sure what they're implying because it doesn't seem to be going on in terms of the research I've done. Could you elaborate on what the BRI is, and is it, in fact, a debt trap? 
You know, this whole debt trap diplomacy idea started uh, back in 2016 and 17. That was the first time, right? There was also neo-colonialism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This idea that China is a neo-colonialist power. I think that when countries blame China, accuse China of coercing developing countries, very well knowing that developing countries that are signatories of the Belt and Road Initiative, they are the ones that are determining together with their Chinese partners what investments they need, what, what, what are their domestic development priorities. When you accuse China of a debt trap diplomacy, despite knowing that developing countries are also propagating this development, then you are diminishing their agency. Mm -hmm. You are saying that developing countries are basically incapable of understanding what they need. So I think that the biggest problem with this argument is to say that if, let's say, a government in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, or another region, you know, is clearly saying that this is what we need, and that then China, you know, you have different mechanisms on the government level, provincial levels. It's, it's quite a complex way in which both China and the host country cooperate. Mm -hmm. But it is a consequence of that cooperation, discussions, various, you know, ministerial level dialogues that determine the final outcome of the investments. And if all of that is happening, and still this is China doing debt trap diplomacy, then what you're essentially saying is that developing countries are not worthy of being. They're just not capable of understanding what's good for them and what's not. Mm. Now, I do think there were a lot of discussions on the success and the needs for, you know, th that there is a need to further understand how to make the Belt and Road Initiative, the BRI investments more effective, more efficient. Even in 2017, during the, um, after the first, uh, during the first Belt and Road Forum, China Daily published an article about FOCAC, you know, at the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation. Mm. And in that, you know, one of the analysts had said that in some developing countries right now, what we see is that they think the success of the investments is the amount, the scale of investment in their country, the scale of pledge investment. But maybe a better way would be to not think about success as is it 10 billion versus 12 billion US dollar investment, but rather think about how, what can the impact of that investment be? Are you able to absorb that investment and not mm -hmm. let it be too much of a burden on your economy? So there has to be a way in which developing countries and Chinese partners, the companies involved together, make the investments even more effective, even more appropriate for the particular circumstances of that country. And I think this is a learning curve that everyone has gone through. I think that's how, you know, we say the Belgian Road has also evolved. But the debt trap diplomacy argument, when we look at major data, when we look at more data, you know, not just some few examples of certain projects that did not do as well as one had hoped, then we see that, no, it is not a debt trap diplomacy. When you actually look at the number, the amount that a developing countries owe to China based on the BRI versus the IMF, the World Bank or other international institutions of Western countries, there is a big difference. The Chinese investments are still creating employment. The Chinese investments are still in line with the development that country has envisioned for itself domestically. And that is, that is the difference that, you know, when we talk about debt trap diplomacy, mm -hmm. is it the developing countries that are talking about it? Or is it those who are just trying to, you know, explain to developing countries, this is good for you and this is bad. And I think, you know, the big change mm -hmm. we have experienced mm -hmm. in the last eight years, especially, 
is that now developing countries have more of a um, capacity to voice what they think. They are able to negate that. And I, I don't think people in developing countries really buy that argument. It's a failed narrative. Yeah, most of the interviews I've seen confirm what you've said about various uh, projects in their own countries. What I understand about the IMF and the World Bank, which are basically one institution now, is that one of the things that they do is make demands. So as a country is developing a project that they wanted to borrow money for, they have to maybe liberalize part of their economy or change some of the laws to allow foreign investment to flow in and to easily flow out. Whereas the BRI allows a nation to maintain its sovereignty. It has a hands-off approach. It's like, we'll help you build this bridge. Here's, you know, here's what we need in order to build that bridge. You have, you know, 2% interest over 20 years and 5% grace period. And, but then China build, builds the bridge and basically leaves and doesn't tell that country how to manage its own affairs. I was wondering in your own assessment, how would you compare the BRI with um, Paris Club, Club of Rome, any of the other developing institutions that are traditionally used for development projects in the underdeveloped world? And Jason, one of the biggest criticisms of these traditional institutions has been that they have too many strings attached. Mm -hmm. They try to tell a country how to govern itself, even what curriculum to teach, how much. Yes, there, there are multiple tiers through which, you know, these institutions have been meddling in the private matters, in the, in the domestic matters of developing countries. And these strings attached are obviously something that many developing countries have spoken against. It isn't a secret that the IMF just doesn't work. Unfortunately, it is the last resort. Pakistan has once again gone to the IMF, for example. It is, but it is an unfortunate last resort. And after that, they will tell Pakistan, okay, you, you cannot give this, this kind of subsidies. You, you cannot control you know, prices, even if it's for the poor people to a great extent. And that is a kind of you know, intrusion, which developing countries definitely do not, it doesn't work for them either. It's not a question about disliking it. It's just, it just doesn't work for them. And there are political strings attached at times as well. So I think the biggest difference is that China, first of all, has been part of the global south for a long time. China understands what it feels like to be told by others how to think, how to govern yourself, what kind of benefits you can give to your poor people. And China has set an example for how a country can develop in its own way, in its own unique way. And that, that is definitely a lasting way to develop. So the biggest difference between the BRI and the IMF and World Bank and other institutions that you mentioned is that China doesn't try to micromanage your affairs at all. China is very pragmatic. It's all about, you know, what are the tangible outcomes of this project? Does it align with you? Do we agree on these, you know, parameters? If it's an airport, a road, a bridge, etc. To what extent? And, and then, you know, even if, let's say that the country needs some help with understanding how to utilize that project. And China also helps with that. So for example, in Pakistan, uh, the Chinese partners have helped with a lot of road shows and initiatives to attract investments in Belt and Road projects. This is the case for all BRI countries. China will help once the investment has been made, the infrastructure has been developed. China becomes a partner in helping the country understand how that in infrastructure can be utilized better. So the big difference is that China doesn't believe in meddling in affairs. And that automatically leads to a kind of trust that many leaders in the African continent have recently also expressed. Countries like Pakistan, Iran, many countries that are Belt and Road signatories, mm. they realize that China is not, first of all, asking us to 
think a certain way, to teach a certain kind of curricula, to have a certain political system. China doesn't have an interest in that. Mm -hmm. China will actually help you on the very practical levels. For example, the Belt and Road Initiative is helping countries, including my own, understand how to really manage poverty alleviation. How can it be done creatively on the domestic level? Poverty alleviation was not a conversation in Pakistan 10 years ago. Today, it's, it's a very tangible conversation because poverty alleviation is not about giving stipends and making people just survive. It's about creating new opportunities in your economy. People, people in those communities are capable of mm. finding solutions. Mm. So we need to be like, we need to be creative and maybe a little mm. more, yeah, we need to be dynamic when it comes to addressing core challenges that our country is facing. So the Belt and Road Initiative is helping us think creatively about addressing the challenges our economies are facing, be it infrastructure, be it poverty alleviation, be it agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a big difference. Even mm -hmm. though there is a deep interest in supporting the host country with its own domestically determined priorities, mm -hmm. there isn't a sense of intrusion. It's more about, you know, coming to a way that China can help without saying, no, 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 you should, your women mm -hmm. should be doing this, or this is how you should be teaching your curriculum, or this is how you should manage mm -hmm. your banks and your monetary policy. That kind of intrusion does not exist. And this is a big difference. And there's a track record over the last 10 mm -hmm. years already through the BRI projects. Well, us. I wanted to specifically talk about CPEC, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, because I think a lot of people maybe misunderstand that it's just a port, roads, and rail, but there's a lot more going on there. And I was wondering if not only could you outline what is going on in CPEC, but also how viable is it at creating economic opportunity and growth for the Pakistani, uh, you know, nation? Okay, so first of all, as I mentioned, CPEC started with the hard infrastructure projects that were Pakistan's desperate need, if I can emphasize the word desperate, to, in 2015. And now, you know, we have thousands of kilometers of highways. We have public transport systems in the major cities of Pakistan. We have uh, special economic zones that are under construction. The Gwadar port is already operational and has been used for trade mm. beyond Pakistan in the last uh, two years already. We have energy. Now Pakistan can even export energy at some point, you know, starting from a point where we had to de-industrialize and we were facing 12 to 14 hours of mm -hmm. electricity shortages. So this is the first, you know, achievement. But since then, what has happened is that Pakistan has started on a very practical level, you know, discussing how we can improve agriculture, quality of agriculture in Pakistan, how we can modernize mm -hmm. our agriculture with the focus on food security. There are thousands of Pakistanis, tens of thousands already, who have received scholarships in Chinese universities and who are now working in CPEC projects or otherwise. That's that's also a big part of the human experience, you know, people-to-people -people exchange under CPEC. We have focus on technical and vocational education, where uh, Chinese are helping Pakistan develop more relevant curricula and also providing machinery, equipments, and a, a teachers training programs in technical and vocational education. We have women now in parts of Pakistan where one couldn't imagine women working at all, being tra tractor drivers or being high managers, high level managers in CPEC projects. We have poverty alleviation initiatives already in place. 
um, we are changing uh, the more we are transitioning towards more value-added farming and demonstration areas uh, of for agricultural goods in in spaces that we thought agriculture is impossible, including water. Mm -hmm. And CPEC projects have also brought a lot of facilities like schools, hospitals, mm. better spaces, and even uh, units for women's training and education in parts of the country where women were definitely at a relative disadvantage. One of the things that I really, you know, you've, if you've watched me on Twitter, you know that I'm really into renewable energy technology. And so when I was exploring That's some of the projects in Pakistan, you have some m super massive solar farms, which I think is just yes. outstanding. Yes, yes, it is. I'll tell you something honest, you know, back in 2015, when the idea of, you know, going for renewables was uh, being discussed, even in Pakistan, people thought, we can't afford it. Not yet. You know, we, we are really going through an economic crunch. And now, I mean, two years on, I was already in certain conferences and uh, certain meetings where Chinese were heavily working towards how can we help countries along the BRI transition towards greener energy. This is a big step that renewables are not seen as unfeasible in Pakistan now, but actually it's happening. We have one of the biggest solar power projects in the region, if not the world, and that is producing electricity. We have solar panels from China are very popular already in Pakistan for many years. Pakistanis are now thinking about, you know, transitioning to renewables. And it doesn't cost as much as they had mm -hmm. initially thought because of how fast China is advancing uh, the technology. China is the leader in renewable energy right now. So this is also a big shift where we don't see um, green energy or renewables mm -hmm. as a cost, mm -hmm. but actually as a medium and long term investment as a viable option. So that that's an important shift as well. And we have obviously 100,000 new jobs in Pakistan. I would add that, you know, Despite the changes that CPEC is bringing to Pakistan, we also faced, we were faced with the COVID-19 pandemic, which all countries were, but that did definitely affect the economy because the extent to which Pakistan was anticipating to attract direct investment from mm -hmm. China and other countries into the special economic zones didn't happen at the same pace. So the pace was affected by COVID-19. And then if you remember last year, we also had massive floods where two thirds of the country was underwater. That has also had an impact mm. on our ability to utilize the infrastructure. However, that mm. said, mm -hmm. there is absolutely no doubt that despite the economic challenges that Pakistan is facing, CPEC is part of the solution. Mm. It's not just part of the solution. It is perhaps the most important part of the solution. Every province, every ministry in Pakistan is learning from China's experience, is directly in touch with Chinese mm. counterparts, is able to, you know, attract or actually have access to technology that we thought was impossible a few years ago. We are able to improve the methods with which we are doing agriculture. We are able to improve the way, like you said, even to the transition towards renewable energy, quality of education. As a country with a very young population, we need better technical and vocational education as well. And China is helping immensely with that. We have a plan to further improve our uh, road infrastructure and our public transport systems. China is the first country that has invested in actually modern transport, public transport in major mega cities of Pakistan. So this is a step forward that would have been impossible for Pakistan alone.
had it not been for China and the support that China has given. This is definitely a lot of people talk about the port of Gwadar. I think more than most of the other uh, major ports around the world under BRI, and it connects uh, Western China mm-hmm. through Pakistan and Pakistan with Western China and basically everywhere. East Africa, um, the Middle East, even Europe. So is this, There, firstly, there's the Silk Road and then there's the Maritime Silk Road, two sets of trade routes. One is Eurasian and the other one is via shipping. Guadar is a deep water port, which makes it quite significant because they can ship pretty much anything from there. So how has this port been transformational for Pakistan? Is it seeing dividends for the nation? It will, more so. So I think one thing that we need to understand is Pakistan has been, first of all, trying to develop the Gwadar port for decades. Mm. When I was born, this conversation was happening, even before that. And then, you know, finally, after there was another country's company that was uh, investing in that port and that wasn't working out. And then 2015, 13, actually, and then 15, finally, in full throttle, CCCC, the Chinese company, uh, comes in, uh, their subsidiary COPHC. And since then, we have actually seen development. We have actually seen the port being constructed. We have seen modern uh, fishing techniques. We have seen the entire city benefit from that investment. So after decades of thinking about it, China was the country that made it possible with, with partnerships. Obviously, the local government has helped a lot. However, we also have to recognize that we, we always thought that Gwadar can be the Shenzhen of Pakistan. But Shenzhen took 40 years to become, mm-hmm. Shenzhen was also a shipping, a fishing village, right? Yeah. And then you don't become from a fishing village to what we know as Shenzhen today in a span of five, four, three years. And I think at times, even for, that's why I think BRI is a learning curve, because even some Pakistanis would think, oh, I thought Gwadar would be like Dubai already. No, it will take time. It's okay. But look at where it was and look at where it is today. And today, really, as I mentioned, you know, uh, two years ago, Gwadar port was utilized for the first time to for trade between uh, from the ocean towards Afghanistan. So that's that's a big achievement. The vision of Gwadar, and as you mentioned, it's a deep sea port, is to connect Pakistan through Central Asia, Afghanistan, also China, the entire region, Towards, towards the south, you know, connect the belt and the road, right? As you mentioned, the, the land and the maritime mm-hmm. silk road. And Gwadar is positioned for that. Gwadar is much ahead of where it was. Mm. And um, obviously, uh, if Gwadar, if we can finally have better development in the province of Balochistan, because if, if uh, maybe many of your viewers are not aware that Balochistan is also a province of Pakistan that has been relatively underdeveloped compared to other provinces. It's a massive mm-hmm. province, which is also bordering Afghanistan and Iran. It has a lot of natural resources. It is vastly populated. And there's a lot of potential opportunity that Pakistan as a country, we have prioritized, you know, untapping, really making this province, shifting it, you know, from a relatively underdeveloped region towards one that that can play a vital role in connecting the region. And CPEC also, you know, it's not just about Mm. Pakistan's own Mm. domestic, Mm. the the real vision of CPEC is to connect the region, Mm. is to connect, you know, uh, help Pakistan fulfill that role, which is is, uh, based on our geographical position to connect 
landlocked Central Asian countries through Afghanistan, from mm -hmm. Pakistan, and then to the region at large. This is Pakistan's own vision mm. for CPEC and China's vision for the region as well, right? A better connected region. Mm. Uh, again, the PRI is about connectivity. Mm -hmm. So long story short, I think, yes, mm. Gwadar Port is playing a role that was inconceivable 12 years ago or 10 years I'm looking ago. forward to being 40 years older so I can see what it transforms into. <laughs> no, no, no. It should be before that. But I'll also mention another thing that I, uh, the first time I went to Gwadar Port mm. was 2017, June. And that time there was a school. The port was there were basic big buildings. There were hundreds, almost a thousand employees. Um, there were ships being docked. It was a functional port. It was impressive. I was not expecting that. And the way, you know, the camaraderie between the Chinese and the Pakistani employees, that was exceptional. I think it really was a space, like when you imagine Belt and Road, friendship, mm. you know, creating spaces and opportunities for people to get to know each other. It's really that place. Mm -hmm. And after June 2017, I went in um, August 2017 and it was different. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, there so you're was, already watching the transformation. Uh, there was more. I think you've seen how fast they build infrastructure in China. So there mm. were there was more infrastructure, <laughs> absolutely, in a span of two months. There was more greenery. The Gwadar port is not known to be a very green mm. region. Gwadar city is not known to be lush green at all. The chairman of Gwadar port had a vision and he told me, he's like, Mingju, you know, I'm going to try to grow these, these kinds of plants and we'll see. Some of them will work. And some of them had worked in a span of two months. There was more green. Mm. He had a plan to uh, wow. further improve the school, the, which is now one of the best schools in the province of Balochistan, that was opened by the Chinese company COPHC in collaboration with the local family. It's a school for girls mm. to help girls get a better education. So the school's infrastructure and facilities had improved in a span of two months as well. Everything had improved. Today, there's like women's training mm. centers, livestock, uh, uh, farming, fisher, fishermen have better uh, opportunities and better technology trainings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you mm. see changes. You know, I put this question to Jeffrey Sachs because he's also interested in development. That is his key thing. He's very interested in glo global development initiatives. So I'm wondering, in, from your perspective, how can Western institutions, the BRI, AIIB, and other financial institutions work together for the betterment of the underdeveloped world? Because I think really the goal here is like what you said at the beginning of the show is to increase the prosperity of citizens all over the world in all kinds of nations. So how can these institutions, which are all kind of doing their own thing, better come together to work for the betterment of everyone? I think the biggest thing coming in their way is this belief that their relative position of power is the only thing that they should prioritize. Mm. I think this I think this is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. To rather than think of another country's improving economy, if if it is a peaceful, you know, and China is a peaceful mm -hmm. country, um, rather than seeing that as a positive development for the world, they see it as a threat. Mm. But if they were to, I mean, like Chinese people, they study history over millennia. They know that civilizations rise, they have challenges, they can rise back again. This is the world's, this is the reality for millennia. No country should think of itself as a hegemon, as a leader, mm -hmm. as someone that should be determining what will happen to the rest, as seeing others as less equal than mm -hmm. himself. I truly think 
that is the biggest challenge for the IMF and the World Bank and these institutions that come from an unfortunately hegemonic mindset, a mindset mm. that does not benefit their own people. But essentially, if they stop seeing the Belt and Road Initiative as a threat, oh, China is using the BRI to influence, mm -hmm. to increase its influence. I don't know if influence, maybe it's an outcome. Of course it is. It does result in a country being more aware and understanding of China, being receptive to how China made progress and learning from it. That is I ran into the same thing recently. I've been posting a series of hospitals and schools and bridges that China built uh, for, as grants for countries around the world, because not everything in the BRI is loaned. Some of it's, you know, there's it's so many, it's a big yeah. variety package of things that are going on. And some of those are grants. We'll build a school for you. We'll build a hospital mm -hmm. for you. And some of the criticisms that I get online are, of course, they're building them a school. This is China's way of exerting influence over them. And I'm thinking, isn't all diplomacy trying to create friendship and influence? Absolutely. So like the purpose of building a school is just really good diplomacy. I mean, I think the criticism is sometimes a little bit ludicrous. To your point, so what you're really saying is we need a shift in the West from winner-takes-all diplomacy to win-win diplomacy, where everyone engaged in the diplomatic effort comes out on top. You know, you trade me this, I trade you that, we both get what we want, we're both happier. And I think, I agree with you. I think that's exactly the problem in the West. The problem also is some of these Western uh, analysts and institutions seem a little bit I want arrogant and it's difficult for them to adopt a new mentality when they're so set in their ways, unfortunately. Jason, I think it's because, you know, another aspect about the BRI or this new mentality that's becoming popular in developing countries as well is to understand each other on a human level. You know, it didn't matter how many people in my country or Iraq or Afghanistan died. There were not even numbers that were worthy of being mentioned. Mm. So if you don't feel that human beings matter, or you can dehumanize them in a moment and say, oh, all of them were a problem, let's destroy them, then how can you shift mm. your mindset? I think that differences, mm. we do need something like the Global Civilizations Initiative. We do need ways in which you know people across continents can come together, talk to each other, mm. and feel that this person is as human. Mm as me. And that can lead to a resulting change in mindset. That is that is the most important thing. You know, when you're sitting on your high tower, many people in the United, and you're from there, so I think you would know even more. Not every American even wants these. People don't want bloodshed and violence. Mm -hmm. But if you tell them that this is the only way, otherwise, oh, we need to kill them because they hate our way of life. They envy us. They want to destroy us. But actually, this is what even Edward Said talked about in his book, Orientalism. Mm -hmm. Those people in the Middle East and, and Africa and now China, you know, wherever else in the world, they're not just sitting there thinking, oh, we hate the empire. They want to live their lives. Mm. They have families. They have histories. They have heroes. They have points of view. They just want to live a better life. And I think, you know, the more we try to create spaces to truly respect and understand people, regardless of how different they are from us, it will increase our propensity as humanity to really seek solutions. So I think there, there is, um, we already see a sense among countries that were traditionally very closely aligned 
with the United States now questioning that method of moving forward. You know, uh, we're actually out of time. I have a lot of other questions. This has been one of the most inspiring interviews that I've done in quite a while. I really hope that we can get you back on in a few months to continue our discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, yeah.